Hi, and welcome to the SIF podcast, where we discuss advice and solutions for the modern therapist whilst trying to help the public find the right treatment and advice for themselves. I'm your host, Mike James. Welcome to episode 12, and I'm delighted to welcome one of the most passionate people in the industry and definitely the best accent in the industry, Anna Maria Mattieri, soft tissue practitioner, manual therapist and director of the school. Welcome, Anna. Thank you, Mike. I love it about the accent. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. It is definitely an accent that I could listen to all day long. Um, between you and, and Matt, who was on the last episode, then the school has definitely got the monopoly on the most engaging guests that we've ever been able to capture. Um, tell everyone who's listening a bit about yourself, your background, and what you get up to these days. Well, I, my background is a bit, oh, actually, it's quite different from what I'm doing now. So my, my path to university was archaeology with the specialism in Egyptology. That's why... I came to this country. It's changed a little bit since then. I mean, I still work with bodies, now alive bodies, but uh, it's a little bit of a difference. I found myself entering into this industry literally by, by chance because I wanted to just do something a little bit different while I was having a little bit of a, a break from uni. And I enrolled myself on one of those very simple courses very base courses on massage therapy and back along it was called holistic massage therapy now some people might and I was one of those and my snub about the term holistic massage and how basic it was but looking back looking back to it now I'm ever so pleased I did that because actually although the term holistic has definitely lost its meaning because it's been overused and it's been bastardized. But looking back at it, now all those elements around the training were as close as, uh, were more close to the uh, um, biopsychosocial model of uh, working with patients, with clients, than some of the courses are now. And uh, although, it, you know, because it was quite, um, focused on people uh, relaxing, on people uh, dealing with their pain through more of a, uh, from a psychosocial approach than a biomechanical approach. Now, looking back at it, actually was a pretty good start to the career. Then I was quite lucky to straight away to be able to work from my local chiropractic clinic so I joined straight away my local chiropractic clinic and there were really forged for me the ethos of my practice and on my clinic which is uh, integrated practice and you cannot be a isolated practitioner and in the chiropractic clinic we used to work and we still work with chiropractors although they're very manually based and with the rehab instructors because from they, they have this, this, pro, this kind of uh, approach where patients will come to the chiropractor first, and then once they had their 
their uh, acute phase of treatment, then they were having uh, a rehabilitation protocol. And I was within, I was working within the integrated approach. That for me was quite, it underpins what as soft tissue therapists or sports therapists, we should be working as, we should be working as part of a care team to provide the best high value care to the client. Then obviously I progressed. I, I went more towards a biomechanically led route. So I did my sports massage and then the clinical remedial sports massage with the uh, ISRM and graduated. Then I went to university and graduated with sports therapy, um, with a bachelor in sports therapy. So um, I've grown through that kind of specific pathway. And in the, in the meantime, I also start also uh, run a clinic where, where, my, where I, I originally started, but now we have several people working together to provide an integrated approach to musculoskeletal care. But my passion was also to deliver a, the approach to practitioners because I was quite disillusioned with my training, with some of my training, a part of the ISRM1, but some of my training that I had both in massage and in sports massage, I wanted to deliver there possibly uh, a, a different approach to it. So I started teaching. And uh, after teaching um, one, one accreditation, I realized, oh, I'm not sure that I like that. I'm not sure that I like uh, the um, how lack of uh, uh, student-centered approach that was. So I contacted Mel, Mel Cash from the ISRM, and after quite a, a rigorous um, assessment, after a few months, I managed to become accredited. And now we run what used to be called the massage training school, and now it's called the school, as we are moving more towards the term soft tissue therapy so that we um, we change the term because massage therapy is great but people in this country consider massage only as one intervention so they view as the massage therapy as a therapist that gives that provides one intervention we want to give the idea that as soft tissue therapists we are we are trained to assess treat through different interventions, including pain education, including movement education, including massage and other techniques to help a client overcome their injury, manage and manage the pain and to prevent a reoccurrence, obviously to, to, become, to uh, increase their uh, strength and prevent uh, um, injury. Yeah, brilliant. And I love um, Mel Cash is literally a legend of the industry. I, I remember when um, we've been really fortunate over the last couple of years, particularly Malcolm and myself, that we've spent so much time meeting, chatting, uh, and forging ties with some of these people. And I'll always remember when um, Malcolm first mentioned to you that what I love about Malcolm is is sometimes his innocence. Being a non-therapist is is he is is 
the way he's learnt about the industry has been phenomenal. But there's been times that's really made me smile. And one was, um, do you know someone called Mel Cash? We've got a meeting with him. And, and I think I went something like, right, l- seriously, Mark, this guy literally has written the book on soft tissue therapy. Um, and I'm not someone who tends to get starstruck quite a lot, but I definitely felt a bit starstruck when I met Mel for the first time. Uh, you know, when we all use the term standing on the shoulders of giants, he is one of the giants. And, um, and someone whose work over... 30 plus years it has to be just commended and appreciated because um, he was a pioneer. Yes, what, uh, what I very much like and I'm proud to be with the ISRM and Mel in particular is that if we now have soft tissue therapy, if we now have a profession that is more than massage, we need to thank people like Mel and uh, what for me is great uh, that is openness he understands where he is he understands where the industry is and he doesn't pretend to be to want his student to be wannabe physiotherapist he wants his students his graduates his members to be proud to be soft tissue therapy because they totally understand the value that we have in this industry as integrated within other professions, integrated working within our professionals. So I take chapeau to him, chapeau to him. Yeah, and I see, I think one of my big frustrations is always when certain pioneers from back in the day don't get the credit they deserve because at the time whatever we think of some of the things back in the day now at the time it was groundbreaking and and it's only time that has allowed us to learn from that and you know 20 30 years from now the stuff we think is the best thing we're offering our patients someone will come back and criticize and say well i can't believe you guys used to do that rubbish it's this now and um, I, I honestly don't think the likes of Mel, and there's, there's many we could, we could put alongside him as his peers, these people don't get the respect sometimes um, and the acknowledgement of you've handed the baton on for us to drive forward now. And uh, too many people are happy to criticise and mourn about some of the older generations and, and the true selfless act is acknowledging that it's time to pass that baton on for someone else to move forward um and not not just keep not just hugging on to the what, what you've built um for the greater good yeah i agree to absolutely and how how coming back to what you said about um understanding where we come from i don't know you mike but i've been in practice for a long time and some of the things i used to say even five years ago, or definitely what I used to do 10 years ago, I think, oh my God, I wish I could call back all my clients and say, oh my God, I was so wrong. I am so sorry. You know, all the time evaluating, we grow, it's a process, but what you said also, absolutely correct, Mike. We must understand, especially when we are in this position, we must understand when it's time 
to listen to other people when it's time to open up, when it's time, because it's not about criticism. And this is as a practitioner as well, you know, it's time to say, actually, it's okay to be uncertain. It's okay not to know. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay if I feel that, oh my God, somebody is saying something about this, about I've been practicing this way. It doesn't mean they're criticizing you. Of course, we feel cognitive dissonance. We have to protect our own psychology and emotional well-being. Of course, we feel bad. But once you feel that bad, there is only the way up. You know, when we talk about disillusion therapies, this, this, oh God, how do you say in this country? Disillusioned therapist. Disillusioned, <laughs> yeah. You say, you understand anyway. This, those therapists that they're disillusioned and no plenty of them because they might have learned something in the course and they come out they think oh my god this is not what the industry is like actually once you're down there that you're really about evaluating your practice that's when you're growing that's when you are actually critical of not criticism but critical of your practice and your education that then you can grow and become a better practitioner for better, providing a better value treatment to your clients. We must evaluate, we must feel comfortable to be uncomfortable. There is a fabulous book from uh, Nassim Taleb called Anti-Fragility. And I absolutely love that. We become stronger through chaos. Absolutely. I did a, um, a live a Zoom session with the STO last week where a group of their members were chatting with myself about prescribing exercise. And one of the questions from one of the members was, um, it was, it was quite self-critical and quite frustrated at his um, lack of knowledge and his inability to be more diverse in what he was offering. And the biggest thing I wanted him to take away from, from the chat we were having was the fact that you're questioning yourself and the fact that you're not comfortable with what you're saying, you're doing more than those people who may know a thousand more exercises than you, but don't have a critical reasoning and, and a level of thinking above and beyond the norm. And you can't teach that skill sometimes. That, the fact he's just doing that puts him light years ahead of people. And I know later on, I think we'll, we'll touch on the subject of knowledge not being necessarily based on the years you've been practicing. And, and it was a great example of that. Now, other than that remarkable Italian accent, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on is because I've heard you talk before with such passion about your thoughts to do with the subjective history taking, the client profiling within the soft tissue world, which, which really stands out to me because it's not about just applying skills to someone. So talk a little bit more about your thoughts on that. It's definitely not just applying skill to someone. And that is if, uh, if um, Louis Gifford said, if the therapist just does something to you, then change therapies. So for me, Taking uh, subjective is one of uh, the main, uh, yes, let's call it the essential event within our uh, assessment that 
can give us a true, can put our, our treatment into a true BPS, biopsychosocial model of pain. The biopsychosocial model of pain is not an intervention. It should be, in my, my, my view, it should be a framework from which we all work with. No matter if I'm working with uh, my rugby players and they have an acute injury, or with my clinical clinics clients that they have persistent pain. Both of them must be seen and must be helped and led to and supported through the healing through the biopsychosocial model of pain. And for us, what I think we love, being an educator, I see, I see very often from students, they're ever so keen to learn about all the assessment, they're ever so keen about to learn about joint assessment, posture assessment, which by the way, there is no relation with, with pain at all, so I, I query that. Anyway, to, to look at movement assessment. So we are, they're always, we're always, even as therapists, even as, um, uh, uh, experienced, sorry, experienced therapists, we always much more keen to listen and to ask for biomechanical cue out of those clients instead of listening to their emotional cues. And that for me is really important. The subjective assessment should be profiling the client in front of you and not only profiling the injury. Obviously, I want to know the onset of injury. I want to know the mechanic of injury. I want to know all these other elements. It gives me a biomechanical idea of how the injury happens, obviously. However, I think we have been given too much um, importance to those biomechanical aspects and not enough importance to some more emotional aspects. For example, how does the pain feel like numerical and uh, um, visual analog scale? But how does also the pain, what does the pain stops you doing? What does the pain stops you? What kind of activity the pain is stopping you doing? How does the pain affect your quality of life? Or even how does the what can you still do that you really like and you're not feeling the pain? Because in that way, I'm profiling the client. In that way, I am understanding what, how the client life is, is, is affected. And I can use that for my treatment and for my advice. If I know that one of my rugby players, they have a meniscus problem and they cannot return to play. But for them, being part of that uh, team environment, being part of, uh, with their mates, being in the changing room, for them is very important. Then I'm going to make sure that my rehabilitation plan is going to be, gonna be um, created, and my advice, not only the rehabilitation, also my advice, is going to be created to fulfill or around his needs of being with his clients, which in practice could mean go and do your rehab while your mates 
place on the pitch. Go and do your rehab down at the club gym instead of doing it at home. Go and support your mates on the, on, during game day and maybe help uh, with carrying the water or whatever. So I make sure that, that if I know that the client, if one of my clinical clients says, oh, you know, dance, uh, my hip is painful, but dancing, no problem. Okay, so actually what you do, you're going to be doing your dancing. You're going to be doing, you, you create the dancing as your, you use the dancing as your rehabilitation. So let's profile the client. And as self-tissue therapists, which use manual massage, the pure form of massage together with other techniques, let's use the time we spend with the client during treatment to pro further profiling the client. Because let's be honest and let's be comfortable with it. Providing manual therapy, providing massage, does not change the physiology of the tissue. It's an input. It's uh, a, a modulator of pain. It says Matt very correctly, our lovely Matt Scarsbrook very corre correctly mentioned in his previous podcast, and we'll talk at Therapy Life about, let's put the health and well-being benefits into massage again. Let's research, let's have, I don't know, even know if the word exists, but forgive me, let, let's invent it. Let's, let's give it, let's have massage therapy explanations. Let's give it a different narrative. Let's move away from that. And that's why subjective is really, really important because through your time you're spending with your client to that communication that sometimes is through the hands, you can really profile the client and not always profiling. And when your client, you know, how many times we, 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 we do assessment, we think, oh my God, this client is moving on and on and on. I get on about the, the treatment. I hear some therapists with that and, and I get, don't, don't think like that. Actually, allow them to talk as long as they want. And then you have to educate them that maybe that session, they might not have been able to receive the manual treatment that they might be expecting. But it's you as a therapist that have to make them understand the value of them being able to express about the pain, the, the value of them being able to express how the pain is affecting their life. Apparently, I don't remember exactly now the, the, the reference, but in primary healthcare, a client, a patient, uh, they are stopped within the first 25 seconds of their opening sentence. And uh, so we must change them, we must allow our clients to talk freely so we can profile them to then use that profile to help them to lead them to support them to facilitate them to get better not to do something to them to facilitate their um, health and well-being or improvement of health and well-being yeah i'm aware I, i'm aware of that study as well and and I'm sure the number is something like if you let a patient talk for two minutes, 
they'll tell you almost everything you need to know and and you're right it was it was certainly less than 30 seconds before these therapists were diving in i can't remember whether they were doctors i think it might have been a, a doctor yeah. study wasn't it? i think it was primary health care yeah. i think it must have been yeah. and they said that if you let them if i remember if you let them talk for at least 90 seconds the consultation time is actually reduced because ultimately if you stop them talking they will want to go back to the issue over and over so the consultation time becomes bigger but yeah. what it is and sorry if i stopped you there mike again it's about us therapists making them changing expectation from client that's why covid has been great because what we have to do telehealth through telehealth, through Zoom sessions, my clients do not expect to go on the couch. Because ultimately, in any clinic, no matter how manual therapy-based you are, or how um, exercise-based you are, if, if you are a sports therapist or a soft tissue therapist, pretty certainly you will have a couch in the room. The moment in which there is a couch in the room, the client walks through the door, there is an expectation there. Zoom or telehealth has taken that away. So the client starts already in a much better position because the client is not expecting you to do something to them. The client already taking on their own responsibility. I think it's an amazing time. I think it's, it's brilliant because you can get the message much easier. And then let's use this telehealth as a standalone intervention when this is finished yeah i agree completely i think i put a post out within the first week or two of, of covid saying something along the lines of what you said that we've never had a better opportunity to prove what we think works will work um but we've got we've got our clickbaity title why covid has been great that that that'll be that'll be one that'll stir up the listeners to, to press play um so here's a question from all that, because I, I completely and all heartedly agree with everything you said. I think I'm a big fan of trying to educate therapists. We all, the reason I think people rush through the subjective is because they think they're losing treatment time. And most of the time it's because they try to do too much, whether it's through hands-on, whether it's through other modalities or whether it's through exercise. And trying to get that penny drop moment with them to realize that the longer you spend, then you'll be more focused on what you need to do and you can be more specific and don't need as much time. Who do you think, with, with that change that you outlined, with the, the BPS model of care and how you're trying to teach the therapists now to work, who do you think is having the tougher time with the transition, the patients or the therapists to switch to that? It's a great, great idea. It's a great, great question. I think, and probably I'm going to get heckled here, I think it's the therapist. I think the patient or the client, as I like to call them, because patient for me is too passive, the client, unless it's given um, the different opportunities, and unless the therapist knows exactly how to present those opportunities to the client, nothing will happen. I am, my clinics are very, are varied. So I have one clinic in town and one in a CrossFit gym. So you can imagine the diversity 
of clients we have. And so we can go from high performing crossfitters to the, the general members of the public, probably less, uh, less active uh, or exercise adverse, some of them, I will use the, the word exercise adverse. So I know that my crossfitters have no problem. They say, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm doing overhead and the shoulder is painful. Yeah, let's, let's do a Zoom session. Not a problem, they take it in. I have to reframe that for my exercise adverse client. So what we did, what me and all my therapists did, the first week we called the clients. We, uh, the one that we, we knew that they were a little bit more into a vulnerable um, situation with the pain. And we let them know that we were here. We let them go into Zoom and have a cup of coffee with them through Zoom. So we showed them that was okay. When we were having the cup of coffee, we were asking them how they were. So we were establishing that the therapeutic relationship is in a non-frightening environment. And then they, we made them understand that their advice they always receive in clinic is the same advice. And that actually, we are very frank with them that the bigger part of the why they get better is not because they receive the massage, it's not because they see us in the same room, it's not because they do the exercises with us, it's because they do, they follow some of the advice and they move themselves again, they feel themselves better. So we can provide that then through zoom so coming back to your question i think before i always evaluate myself as a therapist if something doesn't work the treatment i always evaluate myself and i think it's always about language how you frame that how you frame the narrative you use has to work you have to speak the language of your client and that's why it goes back to subjective unless i know my subjective very very well i'm not gonna understand it's like for um i think matt actually touched on that your students we're also ever so careful about um, um matching the needs of a learner we must match the needs of our clients my crossfitter, I will speak to them very differently. I will deliver the message very differently than delivered it to my exercise adverse client. It's always about our skills. Instead of doing too many courses on manual intervention, let's do some courses on motivational interviewing. Let's do some courses on uh, um, how to speak to different, it's even doing some courses on how people learn yeah so here we go a bit of fun time for you we've ch we chatted off air about some of your thoughts on shaping the industry going forward things to do with graduates versus non-graduates so the podcast goes out it goes down a storm hopefully and the next day you get a phone call from from the president of the msk world and he says anna maria blank canvas you design the future of the soft tissue therapy world, what would it look like to you? I already had it designed. <laughs> um, so yes, as you know, this is a little bit 
little bit another passion for me because I think we live in an exciting time. And Jack Chu has, represents for me exactly that. He has understood that there is enough need in the industry and there are enough people now to want the change. So chapeau to him. And uh, I have to say that the, for me, what the biggest change that now is needed, and it is absolutely the right time, is that lots of our, lots of members says, you know, about oh, the graduate sports therapist, and we, we, we should be the same because we have trained uh, at level five and then we've done so many other CPD courses and so we have as much experience. What for me is not understood by, by what, was, what one could argue with that or should argue with that is that what a university degree gives you is the critical thinking. Yeah, it gives you many other things, but it's the critical thinking. And uh, one must accept that. However, not everybody learn uh, or not everybody or university is not uh, suitable for everybody. And that's why for me, vocational courses, they have a big place in the industry, very big place for many reasons, because usually people that enter into this industry through vocational courses are already um, uh, the, the more mature students, they have life experience and the value that I value that um, greatly. However, we must be unified under a benchmark of training. At the moment, there are different type of training, different type of associations. I love the diversity that this country allows in terms of, I love the diversity of, we have soft tissue therapists, we have sports massage therapists, we've got remedial therapists, I love that. And graduate sports therapists. What we need, however, to from my perspective, is to create a voluntary register, voluntary board of MSK care, where underneath you have members of different associations and different professions. However, to be part of that MSK board, one must fulfill their criteria. And that criteria, that their criteria should be evidence-based, high-value care for the client. And in order to do that, one must prove knowledge-based and portfolio-based knowledge. People can access that through graduate courses, so people can go through there through graduation, or people can go through there through vocational courses. But people that go through there through vocational courses, the course that they attend as first qualification should be accredited by that uh, uh, musculoskeletal board, but then most importantly, all CPDs should be accredited because the problem that therapists face nowadays are in vocational qualification, that the first qualification, no matter if you call it level three, level four, level five, the standards 
are so varied. Then these people let her, uh, these people qualify, and then they, there is a plethora of very interesting CPD courses. But we all know that some CPD courses have better value than others. Better value to what? Actually, the value should be put on the client, not better value for us as therapists. It's about what the client will benefit most. Anyway, so those plethora of courses, people say, oh yes, but I attended this course, I attended this course. Yes, I can attend any course, but it does not mean that I have understood that delivery of the course as it should have been understood. So an MSK board can accredit those courses so that they know that quality, those courses are quality. That's what I think you and Jack's TLC project, I'm very, very excited because you're, you're bringing in quality courses that they're already been vetted. Of course, guys, we know that you um, you and Jack, they, 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 you work within a, a evidence base, so we know that you have quality. But we need to have a regulator out there that, that actually says you must to be part of and to be at par with those other industry and to be part of the discussion with those other industry, you must fulfill those knowledge-based uh, maybe an examination, but they, the, those, those criteria. Being in practice for 14, 15, 16, 20 years does not mean anything. You, you've seen with Matt, Matt, my lovely Matt, just, the, the, the man, absolutely, is amazing, it's amazing. I'm learning from him tremendously. Matt didn't qualify that long ago. He's not been qualified for 10 years, but Matt is a more, um, is a, an excellent practitioner more than people that have been qualified 20 years. I mean, that is a generalization, but to show that you do not have, because Matt keeps himself up to date with evidence, Matt keeps himself critical of evidence and non-evidence, Matt keeps himself abreast and values the client's experience and tries to find what is the best value treatment for that client. And that's for me, is really important. We need, uh, I don't believe statutory regulation. There is no need for, to be statutory regulated. We already have physiotherapists. Why the government will give us enough? There is no need. What we need though, a voluntary regulation because we have a place in the industry, vocational qualifications and people they enter through vocational qualification they have a place in the industry and we should, but they have to do it. They have to follow the same rigorous criteria. Doesn't have to be academic, but the same rigorous outcome that graduate therapists go through. Yeah, I've always, always uh, stuck in my head something someone told me years ago of there are people who have 10 years experience in one year's qualification and there's people who have one year's experience in 10 years qualification and I'm sure everyone listening can think of those people who supersede the time they've spent in the industry and those who you almost wonder what they've been doing for, for the period of time they've been qualified. I think the other thing that you said which, which hit home with the CPD um, 
I always get frustrated at people who don't think about the CPD they're trying to do. They don't think about what are my weaknesses that I need to address? Where do I want to go in the future with this? They either collect the latest fad, the latest trend, or the most marketed trend, or the things that they want to do. Now, if the wants are um, aligned with what your future career direction is, then brilliant, that's fine. But, but having some sort of oversight board effectively, as you mentioned, who may be able to sit down on a one-to-one basis and say to them, right, let's think about this rationally. Where do you want to go with your career? What, what do you feel you haven't got now within this framework that we've identified as, as the future? This is what we think the, you know, and people can't see us, but we're doing the, the fictional quotes, the quote marks. Within this perfect therapist model, you know, which bits do we need to work on now for you? And which ones can we, that would be a fantastic thing to have in the industry. Yeah, I, 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 I got to agree with you on that, actually. I wholeheartedly agree because when you're an employee, you, do, you get appraised and appraisals makes you evaluate. As a, soft, as, a, as a practitioner, you don't get evaluated and you do all these courses and you, you grow, you think you've grown with your practice, but you are self-evaluating yourself and we know that that could lead to so many biases. You know, we all have so many biases. So it would be great if, as like you're absolutely right, if as a board, as an MSK care board, there is a, a annual evaluation because we don't do it. We learn as an educator, you know, that practice is, is, um, is essential. But you do not learn through practice. You learn through evaluating your practice. That is for any student. It's pointless you do your 100 hours of soft tissue treatments. If you haven't evaluated yourself, what did go well, what didn't? And for me, when you choose CPD courses, one must ask itself, am I doing the CPD course for myself so that I can show my clients what I can do, how skilled I am, or am I doing the CPD course to provide something for better and more efficient for my clients? Mine, I was one of those, okay? I was one of those that did courses over courses. I, I jumped all over Europe to do courses. I did so many until actually all of a sudden I realized, well, maybe I need to sit on it. I need to instead of go up, I need to go across. And I need to grow with what I have. Look at your client. What does your type of clients, what does your type of practice needs? Then you go through that. It has to be a client-centered. And that's why people say, why are not evidence-based? Because what the biopsychosocial model tells us, what evidence-based tells us, why we need evidence, because it's the most effective approach to take a client out of pain. In NHS, it's really important because our public money goes to it, so the NHS doesn't want to spend money on things that are not evidence-based. In private practice, it should be important. It should, we should have an evidence-informed approach because we want to, we must tell our client this is your best option to get out of pain. 
this is what evidence is telling us and we need to practice that. It is okay to practice manual therapy. I am a, a, a great believer. I still sometimes provide the classic relaxing massage as a, as a therapeutic tool is because the client at that moment, I clinically have said that that's what they need. And sometimes what they need within the pain with, is to let themselves go and rest. And I say to them, I say, look, a walk in the forest will cost you less. A bath will cost you even less. But they say, no, actually I choose because I love the experience that coming into the clinic, the advice that I get from you, which some of the advice is common sense, but, but they manage to, we can talk about it together. There is an unraveling and that's why they come back to have that massage and i'm very proud very very proud to 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 be able to give general relaxing massage and i urge everybody not to feel to snub any any massage therapist that just does massage as long as they use it for the right reasons within the right narrative and they keep within the scope of practice manual therapy is okay if the client knows the that there are other options and that is framed appropriately. It's like when very recently there, there was a, a research study about um, stretching, decrease, stretching doesn't improve performance. Of course, we knew that. I, I, I hope that everybody knew that into the industry. Does it mean that we should not stretch? No, but we means that do not stretch before an event. Do not stretch before a power event. Do not stretch because you think that is going to improve your performance. Stretch because maybe you like it. Stretch because it might be the only way that you can sit down and collect your thoughts. Might be stretch because it might be the only way in which you can um, relax. Stretch because it feels good to stretch. Go for your manual therapy because it feels good and be okay with feeling good as long as we know why. Right, not so that they you... need to come back to me. Not because they need this maintenance thing. What does it mean? They don't need to come back to us to prevent an injury. Let's make it's okay. I've got clients that come on a regular basis because they enjoy. They enjoy sometimes coming in again so that we can go through a different movement pattern because we can do a movement experience together, because we can do a, a manual treatment. So, because it's an experience, not because they need to, they don't need to see us. No, they, they definitely don't. Most musculoskeletal problems are self limiting, they, they people get better. People get better by themselves. They do indeed. I went on my, you've, my, you've, my waffles uh, are quite... No, it's fine. You've saved, me, you've saved me hours of work there because um, just this week, we, so we've, we at SIF have had a really good, strong relationship with the National Running Show for a couple of years. And the National Running Show, which usually has an event start of the year in the NEC in Birmingham, they've doubled down and they're having a summer event in London. And unfortunately, with COVID, it's been postponed. So what they've done is they're creating a virtual conference. Okay. Um, and, and it's only this week we've, we've secured a, a talking slot on their main speaker stage where I am going to be chatting about is stretching dead for runners? And as I'm formulating this evidence-based PowerPoint, I think I might just put that 30-second 
clip of you speaking there about where stretching sits. I think that fits fits the bill perfectly. Nobody will understand the word. Sometimes it's so funny, Mike, because sometimes my students say, oh, Hannah, can you repeat that word? They think it's my accent. No, it's probably the word that doesn't exist. I sometimes invent words because, you know, with my accent, I sometimes I don't know the English words and I think, oh, that must, must be a word. So I hope people understand. Uh, but I'm passionate do. about it because let's, uh, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's be very, very, very aware the position of everything within this industry. So let's, and let's accept it. Let's be happy about it. Let's be happy about it. Let's not all be wanna be, you know, or overinflate our skills because ultimately we know that the most important part of a treatment, especially for the, you know, coming back to the BPS model, is actually not the specificity, never a treatment and indeed never of exercise. It's about the therapeutic alliance. It's about the interrelationship between the client and the therapist. It's about the way your room is colored. It's about the way your room smells. It's about the way you talk to your client. It's about the, the trust that you have. We have a great responsibility. And that, that we, you know, we've got a great job, but it comes with a great responsibility. We are responsible to pass our biases over to our clients. So we must evaluate what we do, not to influence our client. And we must use the right language and the right environment in order to create that therapeutic alliance. So here's, here's the last question for me, but it's got a couple of parts for it. So let's, let's imagine that um, the world has accepted that vision, that, that fantastic framework that you were thinking going forward. So how does it happen? What's the first step in getting that ball rolling? And then as, as an afterthought to that question, has the effect coronavirus has had on the industry where we've seen many more people communicating and collaborating at a strategic level, mm -hmm. has that given us and allowed us to take a step in the right direction already? 100%. So I have experience, we are very lucky in this industry to have some great people and I have to I have to to mention Gary Benson who I think that man from the professional and personal aspect he is uh, he is the gel of this industry I totally see him he is so respectful of people their background but so forward thinking so this COVID has created an opportunity and first of all has raised again the need many therapists feel and being in different forums and we discuss that with our students so often and with our graduates so often there is this need of a regulator and COVID has brought up, has brought up to our eyes straight away because even the different guidances that went out they were all working with each other they were all great i mean we had some great guidance from the csp um great guidance from this sta from the gm the general council and of um 
soft tissue therapy. Everybody released a great guidance, but that brought so much confusion. Let's have the physiotherapists, osteopaths, and chiropractic have the guidance. Let's as us with uh, manual therapy, soft tissue therapists, and sports therapists all have uh, our own guidance. So uh, that's where we felt that the the industry needed. We needed our own regulation. We needed a, a very consistent and uniform message. And the way I think I think is happening. I think uh, I can already see that there are some players in the industry at the moment where it is not difficult to get those players back all together around the same table and create a muscular, for me it has to be an MSK care board, MSK care regulator and it's those players are very, they're all been working in the industry for long enough and some of them not, but they have the right views and they have the right uh, uh, skills. So for me, getting all of them around the table and create a voluntary register and create those criteria should not be difficult. And then you will find that uh, you'll have a better regulated, much safer for the clients because it's not about our safety yeah, our physical safety is for it, it, for me it's a great nocebo if i say to a client you must come back or you must come back because unless you come back to treatment your your injury will reoccur that for me is as dangerous as any other a treatment that can be physically dangerous for me saying to a client oh wow you go you've been told that you got bulged disc uh, yeah and that for me is, is more dangerous more nocebo so we need to protect the public and for, to do that we need to have those criteria so get people get those uh, stakeholders uh, in in the same room sitting on the table and let's create the msk board and let's give uh, this industry a little bit of uniformity i like it's like a little bit like europe you know, I love having the individualized countries, so individualized professional association that just cater for their members, because every member is different with different needs. But ultimately, we have to have the same, to be in the MSK register, we have to have the same consistent and uniform message and uniform training, which, you know, is the benchmark training of graduate professions. I love it. Um, I think I have no doubt that the listeners, that your passion is palpable. It comes through so much, but I think it's the combination of how you can channel that passion into reasoned and rational thinking as well is, is what stands you out from so many in the industry. Thank you so much for your time, as always. Where can people find out more about you and the school? Um, so... Thank you very much for um, for mentioning the school. So you can find us at www.thestschool.co.uk, and uh, but we are in forums, so you can always ap approach me or Matt uh, as long as you got few hours uh, spare. Because once me and Matt start chatting, we take over your evening. That's uh, um, that's that's who we are. So. 
feel free to contact us. And also, you know, for those of you just qualified and you are a little bit unsure, we are here to, you know, I'm sure that we are here to all help each other. We are all in the same situation. So feel free to contact us, even if you're not interested in joining any of our courses. Our courses. Brilliant. And if you've enjoyed listening to both Matt on the last episode and Anna today, then it's great news from us. We're going to get them back in the future together on the same podcast and we're going to chat about some clinical stuff and, and get some, some real pearls, clinical pearls from them both on, on how to treat and, and how to work through stuff. Um, stay safe, stay well. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this or any other of our episodes, then please do like, share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find us across all social media platforms as Sports Injury Fix and also on our YouTube channel. Thanks to our sponsors, the fantastic therapistlearning.com, the high-quality, easily accessible, curated learning platform for the modern MSK therapist. Stay safe, keep well, we'll be back soon.